Our, our Bible reading this morning uh, is done by one of our young adults who's away at university, Bethany Patterson. And Bethany is going to be reading this series in Numbers pilgrimage that we're doing. Bethany is going to be reading a selection of verses um, from Numbers chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, verses 17 to 20, and verses 26 to 30. Um, I would encourage you, if you haven't already, to take some time to read chapter 13 and 14 together. Just this incredible story uh, in the life of the Hebrew people and the story of Moses. So listen now for God's word. The reading for this morning is taken from Numbers chapter 13, verses 1 to 2, 17 to 20, and 26 to 30. Exploring Canaan. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was a season for the first ripe grapes. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev the Hittites, Jebusites and Amorites live in the hill country and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. Bethany, thank you so much for reading that for us and not a straightforward one jumping about. Yeah, you did really well. Really appreciate that. We are going to pray and then we're going to step into these words um, that have been written thousands of years ago and to listen for what God has to say to us. Um, as we come to pray, our, our prayer ministry team every Sunday before church sort of gather online to pray together, to listen for what God might be saying, maybe relevant for an individual, maybe relevant for our whole church community. Uh, and then after the service, they uh, offer themselves to pray with individuals as they want to. And there'll be a chance to do that following the service this morning. But as they prayed this morning, there was two uh, phrases that just resonated with a number of them. The term new growth and the term draw close. So as we come to prayer and as we come to preach, those two words, maybe you're here this morning, maybe you're at home this morning, and you're not yet a Christian, or there's an area of your life you've been struggling in, and we believe this morning that God wants to bring breakthrough there. So just hold that in your mind. If you're not yet a Christian, there'll be an opportunity this morning to give your life to Jesus at the end of our preach. Hold that in mind. Could God be speaking to you this morning in that way? Let's be still. Let's now close our eyes. Let's, for a moment, allow the distractions, the concerns to fade. 
Father, we come before you. We come before your word. It's open in front of us. We love your presence. We love you. We want to say this morning, Lord, we are here for you. Speak to us. Speak into the parts of our lives that have felt tired and weary and even dead and bring new growth and new life. Father, speak to those who are with us today who haven't yet become Christians. And let them know this morning without a shadow of a doubt that you are real, that you are present, that you love them and your arms are open to them. Father, for all of us, as we draw close to you, may we hear your voice. May we know your touch. May we experience the love of our heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. Starting with a story, true story. Many of you will have heard of, I'm bound to pronounce this wrong, so forgive me for if I do, Malala Yousafzai. Yousafzai? Malala Yousafzai? Yes? Some are nodding. Excellent. Good. For those of you who don't know her story, um, Malala was a little girl who grew up in the Swat Valley in Pakistan. Her father was a school teacher, and as a family, they had this conviction that Everybody deserved to be educated. So boys and girls came to Malala's father's classroom to be taught how to read, how to write, to do all the things that we take for granted here in Northern Ireland. In 2011, the Taliban took over that part of Pakistan, the Swat Valley, and they made a law that they banned girls from education. Girls were not allowed to go to school. Malala was defiant. She was only a small girl. She was defiant. She thought this was ridiculous. She, she spoke out every chance she got. She got to speak at a meeting in her, the town hall. She got to speak to the local press. She's quoted as having said um, in 2011, how dare the Taliban take away my right to a basic education? Wow. How dare they? The following year, Thinks she was about 12 years old. So primary school kids, P7, I'm talking to you. Uh, she was 12 years old, and she was on a bus, and the Taliban soldier got on the bus, recognized her, and shot her. He thought she was dead, but she survived. Didn't just survive, she became well again and thrived. That, that incident catapulted her onto the world stage. And no longer was she just speaking uh, in the Swat Valley for the rights of girls for education. This girl at 12 years old started to speak on the world stage, campaigning for equality between boys and girls and equal rights for girls' education all around the world. In 2014, she was, became the youngest ever recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. And she continues to advocate for the rights of girls and women around the world. I think it's an incredible story, isn't it? It's really cool. Margaret Mead famously said, never doubt that a small group of committed people can change the world. She said, indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. You might be here this morning and think that you are, are pretty small, are pretty small in influence, 
And yet what I want to say this morning is that God not only can, but wants to use you to influence and bring hope and bring change to the part of the world that he has put you in. That's my sermon in a nutshell. You can zone out, fall asleep now if you want, or you can stay with me because there's some more cool stuff to come. It's up to you. Give you the choice. I've entitled this sermon a creative minority. Creative minority is a term that, uh, well, I've called it that because I think it's what we see in this Bible text that Bethany's read for us, a creative minority, a small group of people going against the flow of society and the flow of culture to be a voice for God in that moment. Not only do we see it in Scripture, I think we desperately, desperately need it today in the moment that we're in. What you guys are reading behind you is where that quote or where that term came from. Jonathan Sachs was the chief rabbi for the UK and he cultivated the term creative minority. He said this, to become a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith. Seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you're a part. This is a demanding and risk-laden choice. What a quote. Take a photo of that if you've got your phones out. You want to remember that later on. Is it enough just to keep the sacred flame of your faith burning, to rock up at church every Sunday, to do your quiet time and just keep your head down? Or is God calling you to something bigger? Is our goal existence and survival or is our goal to be a transforming presence for the gospel in the world around us? I'm going to say it's the latter. I'm going to say it's the latter. I think that's what we see in this Bible text. And I think that's what Jonathan Sachs was talking about. I think that's what we, as God's people in this moment, are called to. This story in Numbers 13 and 14, we find about controversial numbers. But as I read it, one million or so refugees in the desert of Paran on the threshold of the promised land. Why is it called the promised land? We use that term all the time, and some folk will know what it means. Some people have been around church for a while and are thinking, I have no idea why it's called the the promised land. Let me tell you. Uh, Thank you for asking, even if you didn't. Um, It's called the promised land because this is the piece of land that years before God had given or promised to give to Abraham's descendants. Abraham had left his home. He had followed God into the wilderness and he'd arrived at this place and he'd put his feet in the soil and he had married and he had children and he had a family. And God said to Abraham, I promise I am going to give you a family as numerous as the stars in the sky. I promise that I am going to give your family this piece of land. And I promise that your family on this piece of land are not only going to be blessed, but you're going to become a blessing to the whole earth. Every tongue and tribe is going to be blessed through your family. That's why this is called the promised land. So Abraham had walked as a nomad through this land. The only place he had, piece of the land he'd actually owned himself was a small field at Hebron which we'll talk about later. But then Abraham had a son who had a son, and then there was a famine, and they had to leave the land to go to Egypt. 
where they became slaves for 400 years. And then God sent Moses to rescue and liberate the people, brought them into the wilderness. And now, after 400, 500 years, they are now standing on the thresholds of the promised land, having grown up with whispers of promise around campfires. The story of Abraham and the patriarchs reverberating in those stories that were shared. And now, this idea of the promised land is potentially about to become a reality as they stand on the threshold. And Moses identifies 12 leaders, one from each of the tribes of Israel. I love that representative leadership. It's part of the reason I'm Presbyterian. It's how we do things around here as well. Uh, And he identified 12 leaders to go and explore the land. And to go and explore the land with two purposes. Two purposes, two reasons. First one was conquest, second one was settlement. Conquest and settlement. Go into the land, have a look at it, see what the cities are like, see what the people are like. Can we defeat them? Can we conquer this land? Can we go and make a space for ourselves in this land? And if we do, is it a good land? Can we settle here? Is it truly a land flowing with milk and honey? Is it Somewhere we can raise children and build houses and feed our families. And so they go and they see fortified cities and they see giants and they see spears and weaponry like they've never seen before. But they also see bunches of grapes that are so big, two blokes have to put them on a pole and carry them between them. They're so big and figs, and all kinds of stuff. They describe it as a land flowing with milk and honey. And it doesn't say it in the text, so I'm taking a bit of creative permission here that preachers occasionally do with this. But as I read through it, I I can't help but wonder, was Hebron a significant moment for them? Because we're told they went to Hebron. And they saw fortified cities and they saw the descendants of Anak and they saw giants there. And fear rose within most of them. But Hebron was the place where Abraham had buried his wife Sarah. And was the place where Abraham was buried and was the place where where Isaac and Rebekah were buried. Hebron was the place of promise the place of the patriarchs, the place where where history was becoming present, was coming to life, and hope was going to unfold. And they went to Hebron, and ten of the spies saw problems, and two of the spies saw promise. And I can't help but wonder, the church today, are we in a Hebron moment? I wonder when you think about the world around us and the COVID and, and the COVID, I'm talking like, goodness me, the COVID. I wonder when we think about society today and everything that's going on in it, does your heart settle on problems or promise? Are you led in your motivations by problems or promise? You see, the the narrative of God, the story of the Scriptures, the story of the Bible, as we have it given to us, handed down from generation to generation, the story of the Bible is divided into four key parts. And, and, And many of you guys know this. 
creation, where God creates this perfect world and a perfect garden. Fall, where sin enters in and every part of society, from the human heart to the, the very creation itself, gets fractured and becomes less than and becomes broken. Rescue, where Jesus comes and gives his life on the cross as a perfect sacrifice and his perfect death and perfect resurrection set in motion God's rescue plan for, for not just for you and me, but for the whole of creation. And then restoration of all things. One day, Jesus will return. He will come back. And he promises to, to make all things new, to make a new heaven and a new earth with no more sickness, sadness, and pain. The story of Scripture can be talked about as creation, fall, rescue, and restoration. And the moment that we live in is somewhere between rescue and restoration. Jesus has done the work on the cross. He has been raised from the dead. He has defeated the forever power of sin and death. He has ascended into heaven, and one day he will come back. But in this moment, in this now moment, in this moment between rescue and return or restoration, Jesus says to the church and to you and to me, he says, love your neighbor. He says, go and make disciples. He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He says, behold, I am making all things new. What a promise. That's the story we live in the midst of. That's the moment that we're in. And yet when we look out at the world around us, we don't see that, do we? Let's be honest. We see a soaring pandemic with the R number fluctuating in numbers that nobody can agree on. We see an economy that's struggling and fear dominating all the news reports. We see mental health rising Poor mental health and problems with mental health rising. We see a lack of services for those with additional needs in our society. We see rising unemployment. We see the, 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 the roots of sectarianism still infiltrating politics and conversation and in our society. Come on. And we see cynicism and discontent and hopelessness. And in many places, even before COVID, the church was shrinking and getting smaller and moving into maintenance mode and survival mode. We see problems. But here's the thing, guys. It's not what you see, but it's where you settle that counts. It's not just what you see, but it's where you allow your heart to settle that counts. The problems are real. Nobody's arguing. Everything I've said there, it's real. It's happening. Nobody's arguing about that. It's painful. It's hard. It's affecting you. It's affecting me and my family. But so are God's promises. So are God's promises. And in this Hebron moment, does your heart settle on the problems or the promise? Does your motivation for the decisions and choices you make come from the problems you see or from the promise of God speaking into those problems? To take Jonathan Sachs's words, is it enough just to keep the sacred flame burning? Or are we still called to be partnering with God, transforming the larger society? How were Caleb 
and Joshua. We see Caleb mentioned in chapter 13. We see Joshua mentioned in chapter 14. That they're both saying the same thing. They're both doing the same thing. How were Caleb and Joshua able to hold on to the promise and the vision of God in the midst of the problems that they were seeing two and a half, three thousand years ago? Let me suggest a couple of things that I think are really relevant for us today. First one is conviction. The formation of conviction within our lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, many of you will have heard of, a German theologian during the Second World War. And there's a story told about him, and I've been sharing this story a bit lately, um, how he stood, just before the Second World War really kicked off, he stood on the banks of the Oder River with a friend. And he looked up river, and there was a Nazi airfield, and German planes taking off and landing, getting ready for the war that was to come. And he looked down river to a little place called Finkenwild, and a little seminary there that he had started, an underground seminary to train ministers how to live holistic Christian lives and preach the gospel in a way that brought people into relationship with Jesus and transformed the society around them. And the guy was with him said to him, you know, why are you bothering to start another, what's another seminary? Why are you doing this? And Bonhoeffer looked at the Nazi airfield and the, the, behind it, the, the, the Nazi regime that was indoctrinating people into this false way of thinking where human life was being devalued. And he said to his friend, he said, what we do in that seminary, what we do with this book, how we allow these words and this truth to form in the lives of God's people, discipleship must be stronger than what the culture is doing. Our process of spiritual formation must be stronger than the cultural formation that is happening in our day. As an author, John Tyson, reminded me of that story and of those words. And it's so true, isn't it? What we do with God's words and God's truth in this moment that we're in must be stronger in forming our hearts than what we see happening in society and what it does to our minds and our hearts. Joshua, in Scripture, Joshua was Moses' assistant from a young age, we're told that. He had spent hours with Moses as Moses talked to him about God's words and his encounters with God, what we would call the Scriptures. He had spent hours with Moses in the tent of meeting in the presence of the living God. Joshua, from a young age, boys and girls, teenagers, listen to this. Joshua, from a young age, had filled his life with the Bible, with God's Word, and with God's presence, God's Spirit, and had formed his heart and his mind with the conviction that when everybody else said, we can't go into the promised land, we can't do it, they're too big, they're too strong, Joshua's instinct was, yes, but God can. Yes, the problems are real, but the promise of God is stronger. Yes, but God can't. Church, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that the Word of God 
and the promise of God and the hope of the kingdom of God is good news for the world today. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Two said yes, the other 118 are on the fence. Do you believe that? Do you believe the gospel is good news today? At home, folks, say it with me. Do you believe the gospel is good news today? Yes. Yes. Goodness, absolutely, yeah. It's okay to speak to the minister, it's all right. Uh, You can do that. Do we believe that God's word and God's promise are alive and powerful and relevant and good news for society today? Yes, we do. Let me ask another question. What's forming your conviction? What's feeding your heart and your mind? Is it the angry rants that you read on social media and Twitter? Fueling our entitlement? Is it the despondency that we find when we binge three, four episodes on Netflix and digital escapism? Is it the entrenchment that we see again and again with Northern Ireland politics that that just feeds our cynicism? Is it the individualism of the age that we live in, saying it's all about me and as long as I'm okay and mine are okay? There's nothing wrong with those things. But if that's what you're feeding your heart on, then you're going to see problems before promise. Your conviction of God's goodness is not going to be the dominant thing in your life. Guys, we need to get serious about our time in God's word. We need to get serious about our time in God's presence. And I don't want to offend, I don't want to hurt anybody, but but a five-minute quiet time every other day is not going to cut it. Our city, our community, our world needs us to be people that carry the promise of God into the problems of the world. And we need to be going deeper with God in his word. We need to be going deeper with God in his presence. What does that look like for you? Really quickly, really simply. Well, do you know what? Maybe you haven't been doing a devotional time or a quiet time. Maybe start one. There's loads of free Bible reading apps. We have some notes as well we can get for you. Maybe even spend five minutes. Why not double that to 10? Maybe even spend in half an hour. Why not add another 10 minutes to it? Set your alarm a few minutes earlier. Or don't watch that third episode on Netflix. Just watch two and then spend a little bit of time reading and praying. Find what works for you, but allow God's word to fuel and feed and form your conviction. The other thing I think that was really important was community. It's so easy to go with the crowd, isn't it? It's so easy to normalize the spirit of our age. It had been so easy for Malala to, uh, that little girl in Pakistan, to say, this is normal. What the Taliban are saying is normal. Just, just go with it. Go with the flow. Everybody else is doing it. It's been so easy for Caleb and for Joshua to go with the 10 other spies, to go with the million people as as it was gossiped among them, we can't do this, we can't do this. The problems are too big, the giants are too big, we can't do this. So easy for us to become cynical in Northern Ireland today, isn't it? It's so easy to, to allow a spirit of individualism to dominate every part of our life. It's so easy to allow what seems to be normal, the separation of faith and public life. Because everybody else is doing it and everybody else says that's okay. 
But we've got this conviction that the promise of God is good news for the problems of the world. There's something about community. There's something about community. Probably one of the best stories I've heard around this is of the Chapman sect. Ripping out all the old stories today. The Chapman sect, there were a group of men and women who, who worked together and came together between 1780 and 1840. William Wilberforce is probably the most famous of them. But it was this collection of politicians and pastors and civil servants and creatives who, who loved Jesus passionately. And they had this conviction that God's words and God's ways were good news, not just for the church, but for the whole city, for the whole society. And so they, they met together regularly and they prayed together regularly and they dreamed together and they listened to God and they challenged each other and they encouraged one another and they picked each other up and they poured themselves into society, partnering with the Holy Spirit to bring radical change for the kingdom of God. That small group of men and women in that 60-year period said about, and these are only some of the things I could find on Google. From that chapter sect, they set up the slavery, slavery, slow down Gareth, the Slave Trade Act, the Slavery Abolition Act, the British and Foreign Bible Society, the Church Missionary Society, the Sunday School Society, the Bettering Society, the Small Debt Society. They were capped 200 years ago. They influenced what historians now believe. They were the primary group that brought about what we now call Victorian morals and family morals into society again. From a small group, all of the UK was influenced. The historian Stephen Michael Tompkins says, the ethos of Chaplin became the spirit of the age. We're so used to the culture around us shaping us and pushing us back. This small group of men and women shaped the culture of the UK for generations to come. Why? Because community strengthens conviction. Community strengthens conviction. Community gives us courage to go further than we ever would on our own. God didn't ask Caleb to stand by himself and to speak by himself. God gave Caleb Joshua. Why? Because God knows community strengthens conviction. As we have sought to open church up again and start to bring some activities back, we have intentionally chosen to prioritize prayer and home groups within that. Prayer and home groups within that. And home groups meet this week. Um, why? Because we know that community strengthens conviction. See the home groups. We study the Bible in them and we pray in them and we talk about the sermon. Uh, we, we, we read books together in them. We do fellowship. We do pastoral care. All of those things we do in our home groups. And they're, they're essential, especially in a church this size. But there's something even more. When you leave your home group and you step into your place of work the next day, the people in your home group are praying for you and encouraging you and they have your back. They're helping you think about how God wants you to use your work to bring about kingdom change and hope. And I know, like, let's just put it out there. Sorry, Zoom, but you're rubbish. We're tired, of, hands up if you're tired of Zoom. 
Wow, excellent. Most people, okay. But, but here's the thing. That's a problem. But at the minute, it's what we've got. And I'm having to speak to my own heart and say, Gareth, get over yourself. Yes, Zoom is weak, but not seeing your home groups even worse. Not having a group of people who can encourage you and pray for you as you step out into the world around is worse because community strengthens conviction. Guys, you cannot do this by yourself. If you are in a home group and have disconnected because of the time we're in, can I encourage you to reconnect, please? If you're not in a home group yet, can I, can I encourage you to reach out and ask about them and explore whether that's something that could work for you? It is so important. Community strengthens conviction. Finally, and this is going to be dead quick because we're almost out of time. Courage. Conviction. Community. All lead us to a place where we have to and will be given the opportunity to step out in courage out of our comfort zone taking a risk, putting our head above the parapet, exposing ourselves. Let's never take for granted how difficult it was for Caleb and Joshua to be the only voices in a Hebron moment. million people were saying, we can't do this. And they said, yeah, but God can. Talk about going against the flow. Let's never take that. We teach this story to our kids, but let's never take for granted the courage those guys had to step out and allow their voices to be heard. Because they did, the promised land was settled. Jerusalem was formed. Bethlehem was formed. A thousand years later, Jesus Christ was born into that family line, into that soil where the promise was made and became a blessing to the whole earth, the whole creation. Never take for granted how difficult it was for Caleb and Joshua to allow their voice to be heard. This week, a friend of mine from Evangelical Alliance stood before the Stormont Executive advocating for disability provision that has been taken away and closed down during COVID because of restrictions. The only voice in a Hebron moment. I don't know, most of us will never stand before a Stormont executive advocating in that way. Most of us will never be leading a million refugees. But God has put you in hospitals. And God has put you in homes with families. And God has put you in shops. And he's put you in offices. And he's put you in banks. And he's put you in IT firms. Put you in the civil service. God has put you in the public square. He's put you where He wants you to be. And perhaps you're the only Christian there. Perhaps your voice is the only Christian voice in a Hebron moment. Do you have the conviction that the promise of God is good news for the problems of this world? Have you people around you who are encouraging you and walking with you and praying with you and strengthening you for that journey? Where is God calling you to partner with his Holy Spirit in your place of work, in your front line, in your public square to choose justice, to choose love,
to choose mercy, to choose righteousness, to choose generosity, to choose him, to choose his kingdom, to choose his words, to choose his ways, believing that the promise of God is good news for the problems of the people around you. Let's pray together now. Picture the environment where you are most scared to be a Christian. The contested space in your life that it is most difficult not even to speak about your faith, but to live from a place of faith. Father, my prayer is that you use us as your church to be a creative minority in the world that we are in in at this minute. Strengthen our links and our influence with the people around us in our places of work, with our families, with the culture, with society. Deepen our love for you, Lord. Deepen our our passion for your word. Deepen our ability to hear your voice. Surround us with people who, who can strengthen us, who can encourage us, who can challenge us. People who know when to say they're there to us, but also people who, who know when to say, come on, God's calling you to something more. Father, keep the flame of our faith burning brightly within us. But, but as your word says, who, who lights a lamp and then covers it up? May the lights that you have planted within us, Christ in us, shine and be good news to the whole world. And as we pray, Lord, I want to give just an opportunity for anybody who wants to respond. To go deeper with you or to, to become a Christian for the first time. Simply to open their hands and to pray with me now. Father, your word says that that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. If you want to become a Christian this morning, pray this prayer with me now. Jesus, thank you for, for coming. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for paying the price for my sin to be taken away. I turn to you. I am sorry for my sin. Fill me with your spirit. Make me your child. I want to be a Christian. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.